Episode 372, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, Part 2, Paralandra. Welcome to the Strangers and Aliens podcast. Strangers. <laughs> to boldly say what needs to be said. Would you be a stranger or an alien? Or would you be a strange alien? The truth is out there. I am your father's best friend's plumber. Superman. Wonder Woman. Heroes. Villains. Captain Picard versus Captain Kirk. Do you think that there's room in sci-fi for God? The very first thing that God did so wise you are. was that he created something, so we have a creative God. This is Strangers and Aliens Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Strangers and Aliens. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and it's been a while. But I am here now with uh, one of my partners, my partner Steve. He's sitting right there, right in front of me. Hi, um, everybody. Sitting on, I don't know what you're sitting on. But a bed. A bed. But not my bed. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but yeah, sitting in front of me here on Skype. And it's uh, time for us to record another episode. This has been a little bit of a, uh, there's been a lot going on this summer. And so we haven't gotten out very many episodes. And um, Steve, it's good to be back with you though, bud. Always good to be back with you guys. Uh, Evan is not with us and I'm not sure no. if it was a timing thing or if it was, a um, hadn't read the book thing, but didn't do the homework. Yeah. But, uh, he's not with us today. So we are here to continue our series that we started kind of last <laughs> year. Kind of. So almost a year ago or just a little bit over a year ago, we recorded an episode about, uh, out of the silent planet. And we're finally getting back to Paralandra. And I don't feel bad about that. Like Seven Deadly Sins, I felt bad about the the hiatus between those episodes. Um The Twilight Zone, that was really more of a of a goof to continue that series that we only had one episode of from years ago. <laughs> but Steve, did you know? Because I forgot, but did you know uh that about seven, eight years ago, um we recorded an out of the silent planet episode. It's funny that like neither of us remembered it. Yeah. Yeah. And so we just went on and did another episode. We, and we did, we did an episode, uh, like I said, a year ago about out of the silent planet, which was just us saying, Hey, we have not done the space trilogy yet. We really want to do the space trilogy. And we've talked about how much we love the space trilogy. And then when I was getting ready for this episode, I did a search on strangers and for out of the silent planet. Cause I couldn't remember what episode number the, uh, episode that we had done was a year ago, a year ago. And then I found that there's actually episode number 47. It's <laughs> <laughs> out, out of the silent planet. Uh, uh, we called it, uh, into the silent planet, an introduction to out of the silent planet instead of just, like a, a year ago where we called it just um, I think we just called it out of the silent planet. Yeah. So yeah. like seven years ago, we were warming you up just to, give, you know, 
<laughs> giving that introduction. <laughs> that's right. And then we figured by seven years, everyone had read the book. And then that's why we did the episode last year, right? Yeah, it, all, yeah. it was all planned out. So here, here's the timeline. February 9th, 2013, episode 47, Into the Silent Planet. <laughs> July 18th, 2020, so about a year ago, Out of the Silent Planet, episode 344. So if you do want to go back and um, you know listen to or re-listen to the first part of our uh, Space Trilogy series, uh, you can go back to episode 47 or episode 344, your choice. What I found very interesting and kind of fun was um, just how we kind of repeated ourselves without knowing we were repeating ourselves because it's us with our opinions about about this book series. So, yeah, a little embarrassing, but also when you consider, I mean, that's uh, 2013, I guess, as of last year would have been, you know, seven years since then. But um, we've been going for a long time with. Yeah. With this series, with this podcast. So we're talking about Paralandra today. And in this conversation about Paralandra, uh, we will be spoiling parts of it. But I I want you to understand that um, this is a book that's got a very simple plot. And so if you know anything about C.S. Lewis and you know anything about writing fiction and you know anything about reading and and experiencing fiction, uh, you're probably going to figure out where things are going as far as the plot goes. This is a story. This is a a book that is about more than just plot. It is about ideas and it is about conflict and it is about um, personal development and choices that characters are making. Steve, when did you first read Paralandra? I'm trying to remember exactly when I first encountered Paralandra. It was probably in the 90s, but I may have read them earlier because I was reading uh, like Asimov's Foundation series, um, especially the first three books, um, and wasn't getting a lot out of them because I was just a you know very young kid. But you know I, I was enjoying the Star Wars novelization and stuff like that, so I was getting into science fiction. I, I didn't. I didn't have a, a comprehension of the the levels of science fiction that there are. You know, there's the the Saturday morning science fiction, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then there's the you know, Sunday morning science fiction, um, and uh, <laughs> and yeah, sort of. And there, this was one of those ones where it got me. It, it took me a while to get into it. You know, the first one, he goes to a, a planet. And it's, you know, sort of terrestrial, but, you know, a little alien. And then this one, it's sort of like he goes to a water planet, which is not very terrestrial, and he's naked. And it was just, there was so many levels of oddness that I was just, I think I just put it on the shelf and kept it there for a while. And then, um, to tell the truth, when I read it this time, I, I don't remember getting to this part, to the end of the novel. You know, sometimes you read a novel again, you say, oh, yeah, that's right. This is the cool ending. This one, I was like, hmm. that's the ending. It's cool. But it's like I didn't – I there was very little that I had anything to hang – you know, to uh, no hooks to hang my stuff on. I, I, I didn't remember any of the, the nuance of it. So this could have been my first time reading it. Really? 
Yes. Because I do remember you talking about in our, well, not just remember, I actually listened to both of those episodes uh, in the last couple of days. Um, and you were talking about how it was hard to get into the, um, out of the silent planet. And, and, and the, in fact, I think it was your wife who kind of pushed you to read them when we talked about it anyway, in, in that episode, how, um, she was surprised that you hadn't read them or something like that, but that was, I think that was the Narnia books. She got me into the Narnia okay. books because the, um, the covers to the Narnia books were, like late seventies, early eighties art. And it just, it didn't click for me. So I looked at it and you know what? Yes. Okay. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking specifically of out of the silent planet and the cover for that. And there was one of the reasons why I didn't get into it. Cause yeah. it wasn't like a spaceship. It was like these weird creatures in a boat or something. And, um, yeah, it was, it was that type of a thing where sometimes something like that is the thing that will, be the barrier to uh getting into something that's what it was yeah we talked about covers um with without a silent plan i kind of would like to talk about them again because uh paralandra has some interesting covers they're not again a, a lot of them don't really match what i picture so the cover of the book that i had when i was um when i was in junior high um had like these just some dragons and some trees and some fishes, like cool looking <laughs> fishes, kind of. But um, but the cover just did not match anything in the book. And that's kind of the cover that um, it's just kind of the one that they've used that that painting. There is some going back and looking at the um, some of the original editions of the book. Uh, mm -hmm. There is some interesting cover artwork. And then I do have a copy of the book here. For uh, for Paralandra, they did this cover that is uh, Voyage to Venus. So this is, um, I'm assuming, it's an American edition. I should probably just take a look and see. Nope, printed in Great Britain. But it feels like they did this because you know people are going to look at the cover and say, Paralandra, what does that even mean? Why would I pick yeah. up a book with this made-up word? Or is it made up? Well... I mean, all words are made up. If you think about it, he's a philologist, Lewis. And if you just take the word apart, peril, Andra, you know, it's a man in peril. <laughs> it's a man in danger, peril, Andra. Yeah, but the person in the train station looking for something to read on their right. commute home. Yeah. If they're looking for a sci-fi book, well, they might pick it up. I don't know. They might. Some people, yeah. Some people they like the weirdness of the of the words. And that's what they'll pick up on. And some people, it's like, eh, it's not weird enough, or it's weird in the wrong way. It's funny how the the brain works with stuff like that because there's plenty of things that I I just stayed away from because it just didn't sound the right way, or that I went towards because it sounded the way I I thought it you know would be cool or something. Just one of those things. But this edition that I'm holding in my hand, they are. I can. I think they're kind of selling the book on what they can sell it on, which is uh, C.S. Lewis. His name is five or six times bigger than the title. And that's even with the change title, <laughs> Voyage to Venus. Um, yeah, but it, there are some more classic sci-fi looking covers. The Avon edition um, has a, a, an image from later on in the book 
where um, Malacandra and Paralandra show up personified. That's a sci-fi publisher who did that cover. Um, but there's, <laughs> there's just like Adam and Eve in the old school picture books that you get as a kid. Um, Malacandra and Paralandra have very conveniently placed hair <laughs> and mist. <laughs> so even though uh, the way they're described in the book, um, I believe it actually specifically says that there's nothing physically gendering them. Um, when they appeared naked to him, but, but that's because they were concepts and ideas, but they just personified masculinity and femininity. And it's, it's like Edenic nudity where if there's no shame to it, you know, it's not like they're, if, if you were covering yourself, it wouldn't be for the reason of shame. It wouldn't be for, Oh, these are, you know, parts that, you know, now are lurid it's just you know that's that's how people that's how people look yeah and, uh, that... <laughs> i do have a note though that um c.s lewis sent to sister Pen- penelope um in this letter this is a, a, a nun and actually the book is dedicated to the people um to her and, and some of her sisters um, but to Sister Penelope, he says, Par- this is December 1942. Paralander will reach you, I hope, early in January. I have deterred the artist from putting his idea of Tinadrill, you can imagine, on the cover. <laughs> I have been very busy with one thing and another. Um, but I think that they might have been going for a lurid kind of pulpy sci-fi right. cover with, with yeah. her. Because you can't really do nudity nowadays and not have it have that sense. You just, you know, like you wouldn't have a movie of this because the entire time people would be looking at the nudity of it and, you know, either in a, in a lurid way or commenting on it. Like how could a Christian person write so much nudity into this thing? Yeah. Although he himself explains it in the book, that type of a thing. Yeah. There's a cool cover that um, I'm not sure uh, who the publisher is, but it has a very stylized, uh, uh, I guess, minimalistic kind of a, a vibe going on where Ransom himself is is nude, but um, conveniently placed leg. But uh, Tenadril and uh, Tor, I think, is the, the king mm-hmm. of Paralandra. Yep. Uh, they are very stylized and and minimalistic, and they do not... I think that's that's the other way to go. Like you can tell they're naked, but it's not a sexualized nudity because it's not a realistic image at all. Right. Uh, but then it also has a very much uh there's the devil and he looks like he has horns on his head and there's a spaceship too that does not look anything like uh what's described in the book. So <laughs> probably one of the better covers is uh there's a cover that shows just an island with some islands around it and that's it. And in in a lot of ways, that's, that sets the right mood, the right tone. Yeah. The one I have and that I read from this time was a really interesting stylized cover where there's this hand coming up from the ground with an apple or a fruit. And then some sort of a, like a, gazebo almost type structure coming out of that and then in the background there's like this this 
purplish sun type of a thing and sort of like an infinity thing going behind the sun with like a male and a female thing inside the infinity circles and it's all on this planet that doesn't really give you the the hint that it's watery it's more you know rocky Mm -hmm. but that's i mean that that's the type of cover that i would go to you know, if I was if, if if I was picking this up sight unseen, um, I might not pick up a cover with naked people on it. <laughs> uh, that um, cover is the cover that my school library had when I was in high school, and yeah. so I was reading my book that had the creatures on it, and then I saw my friend was reading this one, and I, it was cool because if I'd seen that cover before reading the book, I wouldn't have known what am I looking at. But after reading the book, that that sets the the metaphoric tone. Yeah. The mystery. Yeah. I mean that apple coming up through the ground, there is no apple, but there kind of is. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I read it for the first time in eighth grade. This is a book probably that I've read more than any other book at all. Uh, the whole way through. Um, Cause even the Bible, I've only read the whole way through once or twice. So <gasps> heathen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I read this when I was in eighth grade. I read it in high school, maybe even two times in high school. I read it in college on my own for fun. I read it in college for a class. I read it when I first got married. Um, I just love this book a lot. Like it just, when I first read it, Out of the Silent Planet was difficult for me to get through because while there were some interesting bits, there was also a lot of things that just did not engage my um, Star Wars loving, Star Trek loving screen loving mind. Um, but you know, I'd read Star Trek novels and like you, I'd read some star Wars stuff, not a lot. That was very hard for me to, I think we talked about this before for some reason for me, reading a Star Trek novel was easy reading a star Wars novel. It's just very difficult for me to slog through it. And I don't know why. And I think some of it has to do with star Wars is so visually based with the action and adventure and, and pacing, but star Trek pacing on screen even when they're exciting, <laughs> hasn't always been paced very quickly. So I'm not sure what the deal is with that. But um, as I said in our Out of the Silent Planet episode, I love the Narnia books. And so my dad said, well, if you like those, you'll probably like these. So for my birthday, my aunt got me the Space Trilogy. And I it took me a couple tries, but I got through Out of the Silent Planet. Paralandra, the first time I read it, I won't say I couldn't put it down. But I, I will also say that I didn't have to put it down. Like it, it engaged me enough the entire time I was reading, especially the conflict at the end. And there is just parts of this book that have just haunted me over the years and haunted in the sense of not the sense that actually he talks about in the book, but uh, haunted in the sense that it just stuck with me. And there's there's these moments like the the wound on his heel and different things like that that just it just really engaged me as a, as a young believer and a lover of science fiction that I think was also part of his motivation. He talked about when he made uh, out of the silent planet, when he wrote Paralandra there, he was writing the books he wanted to read, but then he also takes, you know, in Paralandra, he's taking paradise lost and just kind of giving it his twist to make it a little more palatable <laughs> because in paradise lost, he did not like Satan. So, um, so I guess actually real quick, we should probably talk about just what this book is about. 
if we were still going with that original titling where we talked about Into the Silent Planet in episode 47, mm-hmm. this might have been Paradise Kept or something like that, where yeah. instead of, uh, you know, just done the twist on Paradise Lost, but um, Paralandra is about a young planet, Venus, which is Paralandra, and Ransom from the first book is taken by angels in a coffin to the planet <laughs> where he meets that planet's Eve. And we find out later on in the book that her name's Tenendril. Tenendril? Tenendril? Tenendril, yeah. Tenendril. I'm going to stumble over names on this again. So, Steve, please correct me because. Tenendril. Tenendril, thank you. Um, but they, he then interacts with her as an unfallen innocent, but not childlike, not childish, I should say, uh, person who has not fallen yet. And then Weston from the first book arrives Mm -hmm. in a spaceship and he is there as Satan's representative. And then as Satan's host to tempt her to that planet's sin, which is not a fruit, but which is to, spend the night on the fixed lands because Venus is a water planet and all of the islands on Venus, except for a couple are floating islands. And so the expectation that, uh, God, (laughs) Maladil, all those expectations that God has given her and her husband is to spend the night living on the floating islands they can go on the fixed lands but they cannot stay on the fixed land overnight and so she is tempted to do that and there's some interesting stuff with that temptation that we need to talk about but you know not not to give away the ending but i guess i gave away the ending when i said that we could have called the episode paradise capped because over the question mark maybe oh well i already gave it away so (laughs) we'll edit it in post yeah yeah so that's that's the book, and it's very simplistic, but it comes down to a battle of words, battle of wits, and battle of wisdom for the heart of this innocent this innocent person on on Venus. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because when you, I mean, I I deal with children a lot. I drive a school bus and. Um, Obviously, you deal with children, but when when you have that innocence, that you know childishness that's trying to mature but stay childlike, you know there's that there's that area in the middle where your guidance is just it's just crucial as as an adult as someone who knows better, and to have someone else you know, doing very much almost sort of like what Loki is doing in the, in the Marvel movies, you know, he's, he's taking the simple things, but just like putting a slight little twist on it where it's sort of like, how could you possibly look at it that way? It's like, you know, you took me away from my family. It's like your family that was going to kill you. Yes. We took you away from them. So if you want to, you know, fault us for it, then, you know, you're alive, but you know, things like that, where, where Weston, and his possessed state is, is just, you know, putting that little twist on things that, that, uh, Tenendril is, is, 
is going to stumble on. And he's like putting these little stumbling stones in front of her. And, um, and, you know, I think one of the, the horror aspects of it is, you know, uh, ransom needs to sleep. Yes. And, yeah. and he wakes up and, and, and it's, there's a really creepy part where, uh, Weston who doesn't need to sleep will stay with ransom as he's trying to go to sleep, but he'll, torment him by like every minute or so he'll say you know he'll say ransom and every like a minute will pass and ransom and he's just like tormenting him by just giving him that little you know just about to doze off and then he hears his name again and he knows as soon as he dozes off that weston is going to go right over to tinadrill and start start in again with the indoctrination and the twisting and the, the the deception and the falsehoods and all these little things that he's layering on top of each other that now Ransom has to go and unweave and try to figure out, you know, in the first place. Sometimes this stuff gets so deep that, you know, I mean, you, like with my, with my daughter, when I started to homeschool her, she had been told something by a teacher years ago. And we didn't know that. So we had to keep trying to unfold the, the experience that we're going through, that she didn't like a certain subject. And we had to keep at it and keep picking at it and keep twisting it and keep unwinding it to a point where we could figure out all the way back to that one little thing where the teacher said something that she probably misunderstood. You know, the teacher probably said something simple and she, you know, conflated it. Um, with something else. And, and once we got to that point, we could untie the whole knot, but ransom, you know, he wakes up and he has to get back to that whole conversation, figure it out, you know, and still try to try to be that voice of, of reason for Tinadrill. Reason and, and the, truth. Yeah. And there's a lot of times in the book where you're reading it and you're like, you know, I, I know there's a sequel to this book, so it must end well, but <laughs> you're fearing for Tinadrill. You're, I mean, Eve fell for it. You know, why, why wouldn't Tinadrill? That's one thing that comes out of my early reading. I don't remember if I didn't know what was going to happen when I first read it. Like, did I just trust it's going to be a happy ending? Cause I was young enough and naive enough to think, well, of course it's going to be a happy ending, you know, or, or not. And since as an adult, when I read it, I know, you know, I know exactly where this is going. And, but it's one of those things again, where the fun is not necessarily in the, what is going to happen, but in the, how does it happen? Yeah. And, and yeah, we do know there's a sequel to this book, but I, I'm more, of course I ransom is our primary character. We're following uh -huh. him. We are, he's a, it's a limited, um, omniscient, narrator narration kind of going on actually it's not even a narration uh, omniscient narration it's just a limited perspective narration that's going on and it's ransom it's actually someone else yeah it's someone else telling ransom's story actually yeah. yeah and and so you well i guess you do know he's coming back in chapter three yeah <laughs> i guess there isn't really a any suspense about if he's coming back or not anyway because um he does return in in chapter three and then tells his story to Lewis, uh, mm -hmm. as, as, as Lewis's friend, he's telling the story to him, but, um, 
the 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 scene you were talking about with with Weston where he he doesn't have to sleep because he's possessed and he's you know basically a dead man walking with a living spirit within him and he's saying ransom ransom but then ransom will say what <laughs> and then nothing <laughs> and then he'll just start over it again <laughs> and so ransom is like going between do i ignore this but as soon as ransom says what and he he always gets to that point where he says what and then weston says nothing and i'm just picturing lewis like because i used to do that like to my siblings you know <laughs> we'd be like hey hey john john what nothing what? <laughs> and then <laughs> i'm just picturing him like thinking about what's the worst torture in the world i remember when warren used to do this thing to me we're trying to sleep as kids or something like that um because it's yeah. really kind of funny until you understand the stakes behind what's going on like the stakes behind me doing that or if if lewis's brother did that the stakes are probably more yeah this isn't good for our relationship you know, because I'm really being <laughs> annoying right now. But yeah. the stakes for, for Weston and Ransom is, yeah, Ransom is exhausted. He's tired. And this body that is inhabited by an evil spirit does not have to sleep and can take advantage of that. The one good thing is that um, the green lady, Tinadrell, she has to sleep as well. And so there is some uh, little bit of, of a break there. But even then, Ransom feels like he has to stay with Weston to make sure Weston doesn't do anything. Cause one of the most horrifying parts in the book for me and has stuck with me ever since the first time I read it. Like I, I just remember every time I read the book waiting for the scene to come where Weston is going around killing the frogs <sighs> and the frog yeah. things. And it's just like this moment in time for this pure, innocent planet. Evil has entered the planet and evil is now acting on that. The interesting thing when I listened to it this time was I realized, you know, Weston is a scientist. And so is it evil just I'm killing to, for the sake of killing? Or is there a little bit of dissection going on there? Yeah. Either way, a horrible death is being brought into this place. But the um, the thematic messaging behind it is a little bit different depending on how you look at it there. Because uh, Lewis, again, Lewis was not a fan of space travel in real life. He did not feel like we should actually be going to other planets. And he actually talks about it in this book here. Weston was part of an interplanetary committee group or whatever uh, at university stuff. And I talked about this book before. This book here is uh, Arthur C. Clarke and C.S. Lewis from Narnia to a Space Odyssey. And it just has some letters between C.S. Lewis and Arthur C. Clarke. The first letter is written in 1943. It's from Arthur C. Clarke to C.S. Lewis. And he says, I wish to disagree somewhat violently with you over a passage on page 92 of Paralandra beginning. He was a man obsessed with the idea and ending is to these minds a welcome corollary. The whole passage seems to be an outburst of unreasoning and emotional panic rather than rather surprising after the acute penetration of the screw tape letters, which incidentally appealed considerably to me, notwithstanding the fact that I have not felt much sympathy toward the Christian tradition. You, as well as professor Weston seem obsessed by an idea. Clearly you have encountered the juvenile and usually badly written outpourings of the pulp <laughs> magazine, science fiction writers and have sufficient discernment to realize what that trivial, though they often are, they do represent a powerful new force in the world of ideas. But you have taken science fiction and its themes far too seriously, because stories of interplanetary imperialism and destruction are the stock and trade of the hack writer. You seem to imagine that there exists a considerable body of people looking forward with over into 
anticipation to vast wars of conquest over the surface of an expanding sphere centered upon the earth. Nothing could be more remote from the truth. And then he talks about, you know, you need to distinguish between science fiction magazines and interplanetary societies um, and how the science fiction magazines are appealing to the lowest common denominator and they're trying to get people to buy their books and the schoolboy who revels in tales of bloodthirsty special battles in which whole worlds are blown to dust is not a budding militarist. <laughs> and then Lewis's response was, uh, dear Mr. Clark, I quite agree that most scientific fiction is on the level of cowboy stories, but I think a fundamental moral assumption in popular stories are a very important symptom. If you find that the most popular stories were those in which it's cowboys always betrayed its, his hearts to the crooks and deserted his girl for the vermin, I don't think it would be unimportant. I don't, of course, think at any moment that many scientists are hidden or hiding Westons. But I do think, hang it all, I live among scientists that a point of view not unlike Westons is on the way. Look at Stapledon. Stargazer ends in sheer devil worship. Halden's Rosetta Worlds and Waddington's Science and Ethics. I agree technology is per se neutral, but a race devoted to the increase of its own forces and technology with complete indifference to either does seem to me a cancer in the universe. Certainly, if he goes on his present course much further, man cannot be trusted with knowledge. Yours, C.S. Lewis. Harsh. They are harsh, but they are good natured. Like the letters are good natured. There's actually oh, yeah. a later letter in 1953 uh, from Arthur C. Clarke where he's, he actually had invited C.S. Lewis to talk about the the fears and dangers of interplanetary uh, travel and conquest. And then he says in this letter in 1953, I hope you won't mind the not uncomplimentary reference I make to you in my forthcoming, forthcoming novel, Prelude to Space. And I have not read Prelude to Space. I've heard it's really dry and kind of boring. It's a 1953 novel that's very, very um, technical about how we would go to the moon. And it's very much more about the how do we get there. (laughs) I haven't read it, so I don't know, like how good it is or boring it is. But I now want to read it just to find, like, what is that reference to to C.S. Lewis in that book? That's interesting. Yeah. But Weston definitely is there um, for conquest, and we have a battle for the planet on on Venus here with Weston and Ransom as the uh, soldiers for the different sides that are going there. I, I just, I, like I said, I love this book so so much, and I've read it so many times. And when I say so many, I, I don't think it's like in the dozens, but it, it, could you quote parts of it? No, no. I could not. It's just, it, it's memories of the things that happen. In is, it. is there anything in the book after reading it so many times that you sort of, you know, has, has struck you after reading it so many times and, you know, that it might, you might have some deeper, uh, deeper clue about something else later in the book or something like that. When I reread it, not this time, but the time before, it just didn't click with me. And maybe because I just read through the chapter so quickly is that first chapter, the horror of that first chapter is really setting up what kind of um, conflict we're getting into with the conflict of ideas and the battle for the mind, because that's where C.S. Lewis is trying to walk to the the kind of cabin or whatever where the coffin launch is going to be. And he's just struck by these inane fears. It's getting dark. Oh, I left my, I left my, my bag. 
on the train. I should go back and get it. And it's all these kind of inane things to to get him to turn around and go back and not be a part of this. And um, it just, for some reason, I think because I really, after reading the first time and knowing what I'm getting into later on in the book, I really think that it came down to, I'm just getting past this to get to the meat of the book. I'm getting to the good stuff. And this first chapter, you just, oh, there's something so deep and subtle happening here. And, and actually not even that subtle really, because it's, it's, it's very clear that there is something happening. Um, that it's, it's a, it's spiritual battle. It's definitely a principality battle, although it does turn into a battle against flesh and blood, but that's, that's after the principality battle is done. And, and there's one more recourse left for, for the unman. Um, so there, there's that. And then there's other things that just kind of pop out to me when I read it again, where it's just, Oh, I never understood that this way. Or, you know, and, and trying to think of like, some of the things, well, I'll just, I'll look at my notes. Oh yeah. Here's the big one. In chapter two, Ransom talks about being chosen accidentally because he was kidnapped in the book one. But then when you think about who he is and what he he's doing, he's a, he's a philologist. He's, he studies language. He understands language. He was able to learn the old tongue, the galactic language on Malacandra. So what looks like a random thing because he was kidnapped as he was just happening to walk by this old lady just happens to say, Hey, my son isn't real smart and he hasn't been home and he's working at this house over here. Can you go and get him? So it's just this kind of random thing. Well, I'll go and check on him. And so then instead of the son being taken to Mars, um, the son gets gets set free from being kidnapped and Ransom gets kidnapped and taken to Mars. Well, what does that do? It sets up a man who studies language for a living to learn a language, to be able to go to a planet later where a battle of words is about to happen. And he gets to be a part of that battle of words. There's a line that just says a pugilist or someone with a Tommy gun would be better suited to this job. But no, he is the best suited person for this job, even though he doesn't look like it. And that was one of those things where it became kind of a personal devotion for me almost, where it's like, this is how God works. This is, you know, he chooses the right person for the job who does not look like the right person for the job. You know, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, or in this yeah. case, in this case, God looks at the uh, educational experience and the mind of, of Ransom. Yeah. I mean, look at, look at with Paul. You know, he, he chose a Jew of Jews, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the <laughs> he has a, a, you know, his, his laundry list of how Jewish he is and he sends him to the Gentiles. <laughs> but his family background potentially was a very Greek background. So he would have been yeah. able to relate to both sides there. Yeah. So the, 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 the other thing with that is, um, this is a little bit of a retcon, I think. In the first book, Ransom's name is said to be a pseudonym. It's said to be made up because basically right. to protect the guilty or whatever, you know. Right. Um, but in this book, we find out that his his first name is Elwyn. Well, we, we find that out in the first book. But uh, we find out that his first name, Elwyn, means friend of the Eldil. And that Ransom has a meaning far beyond, um, what was it? Ranwell's or something like that. Ranwell's son or whatever it might yeah. be. 
Um, so he's looking at his name as, oh, it's just a random coincidence that my name has a uh, English meaning. But now we find out that Ransom is actually his role. The retcom is, is, uh, is that really his fake name? Right. Like, what's his name for real then if it's not Ransom? But uh, basically, God says to him, my name is also Ransom. You know, or my name was Ransom. You know, where it's the idea of Ransom came to Venus to be, uh, to go through a metaphorical death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. And to be the ransom for the uh, the people of, of Paralandra. When I read that, I was sort of like, okay, so his name might not be Elwyn Ransom, but it's something that would have that same type of wordplay involved with mm-hmm. it yeah. to make it still work here and, and not, uh, and not give away who, who the real person is that he's writing about. And so you just got so, the, uh, the no prize for that, for like, yeah, you know, giving the explanation. Cause in Paralandra, I don't think he even mentions anything in Paralandra about it not being his real name, but it's right. definitely said outright in, yeah. in out of the silent planet. And things like that can get away from you as a creator, as a writer, where, I mean, that's why there's no prizes because Stan Lee wrote so much stuff that, you know, it's uh, like, I don't make mistakes, but you fly. tell me how it's not a mistake. Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. And if you do that, you get a no prize in the mail and it's an empty envelope, <laughs> which it's brilliant. I mean, yep. it's so cool. I wish yep. that it was still around when I was, you know, aware of comic books. Yeah, that's a discussion for another time in our Stanley episode. Um, one of the cool aspects for all three of, of these books, and we'll get into you know that that hideous strength. And I'm not giving anything up, um, but the the world building he does for all three, and even with that hideous strength, if you think about it, it having just read it he does something in each one that that really it makes them so unique you know it's not just a water planet yeah. it's a water planet with these elements on it for these specific reasons you know it's not just uh uh malacandra you know it's not just mars but it's 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 the mars we see but with the layers on it and you know with that hideous strength that's a discussion for a different time but it's it's the same type of thing where he he gives these things such depth no pun intended that you know they they almost become part of the story themselves sort of like the enterprise is almost like another character Mm -hmm. um you know the planets themselves uh, take on a character of their own that uh, is really vivid. Um, and sometimes you don't get that with older science fiction. They just go to a, you know, like, sort of like George Lucas. It's a snow planet. It's a desert planet. It's, you know, Flash Gordon type of stuff where it's, you know, you go to this part of, the, of Mongo and then you go to the under the water part of Mongo. And it's, it's all stuff that you could sort of, you know, duplicate on Earth. But with his planets, they're they're sort of unduplicatable. 
You know, you, you, you couldn't write another story about Paralandra well, where we land there and set up our colonies and stuff because it wouldn't be Paralandra. It would, it would, it would be something completely different, you know? So yeah. I, I thought that was a, and, and that, in that sense, what Lewis is doing is writing a science fiction novel because he's like, what <clears throat> if there is this world that was like this, you know, this right. old world of Mars that is a dying world. It's winding down or this new world of, of Venus where it's, it's a water world with floating islands and, and that kind of thing. And so you have the, there's the exploration side of things. There's the unraveling, the mystery side of things. Um, but we talked about before, you know, in out of the silent planet, the science is not scientific at all. It's made up stuff that yeah. he's just saying, Hey, it's scientific because I said they did this scientific thing <laughs> and they did it <laughs> and it was a thing and it was scientific yeah. um, for Paralandra. He just skips it all together. <laughs> he just goes straight to, yeah. And then the angel put him in a coffin and carried him to the planet and he was yeah. there. And it's very much a, a spiritual journey. And it goes yeah. back to that thing where he said that um, the novel Arcturus by David Lindsay, I think um, caused him to realize this is what, planetary interplanetary fiction is good for is a spiritual journey. And while this is not a metaphor, he clearly says though, this is not an allegory on Paralandra. It is a, what if on Paralandra, but he goes to this, what if world so that he can ask this, what if question that has very deep spiritual ideas behind it and explores the idea of sin, the idea of temptation, the idea of innocence, the idea of evil, the idea of what is a childlike, innocent, wise person, what do they do when they first encounter the idea of, of evil? Yeah. When they first encounter the idea of, of rebellion. And, and Weston's temptation is insidious. At one point, I'm, and this is another thing that I can't remember if this stuck out before, but it definitely stuck out this time for me, was the, the temptation line where he's saying, God gave you this boundary because he wants you to cross it. And if he were to say, I want you to do this thing, then you're doing it because you want to please him instead of because you want to do it yourself. And so he set up this boundary because he wants you to cross it so that he, because he wants you to make your own decisions for yourself. And it's that twisted warped lie that there is a little bit of truth. Yes. God wants us to make, the correct decision. Um, he wants us to choose for ourselves who you will serve, you know, that kind of thing, but he doesn't want us to cross that boundary. That's not what he wants, you know? And then are we truly acting in our own decision-making if we're doing what God wants us to do? And it's just this really insidious temptation. And I've yeah. heard things like that before where people, usually when I hear it, it's people um, making excuses for what they've done. You know, it's, right. it's kind of an after the fact kind of thing, but I might, I think people might even use an excuse like that to give them permission to do the thing. You know, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but, and just the interaction between the two, uh, between ransom and, and Weston as they're fighting. Um, and, and basically they're debating, they're, they're giving a debate. And then, uh, the green lady is the one who gets to vote on who won the debate more or right. less. And, uh, yeah, it's just wonderfully insidious. Yeah. 
Yeah, the way he he gets into the mind of Weston and the mind of evil, you know, the mind that's overtaken by evil. I mean, in in some ways, I guess it's not hard because in our worst moments, that's us, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And him, you know, just a decade before, uh, you know, coming to Christ and having, you know, probably the, uh, all of the 1920s to, uh, to get his, his brain, you know, in, in the flesh, in the world and all that stuff. And to have that, um, that information, that experience informing this story, you know, or parts of this story, probably a lot of the Western parts, um, you know, probably a, a very fresh for him. You know, people like like me. I, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian family, church, you know, most of my life, and all that stuff. So, you know, for me to become Weston would be many steps. You know, but for Lewis, it probably was maybe closer to Weston sometimes in his life than than to Ransom. And, you know, he, he, through God's grace, chose the ransom way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm sure, you know, there's probably a lot of Weston in him that he was able to draw on um, and to, to put on the page. And, you know, maybe it was cathartic for him. Maybe he killed you know, a lot of those bad ideas and a lot of those bad things by thinking it through on the page. Yeah, one of the interesting things about the Weston idea is... Um... So when he came back from the war, he had made an agreement with uh, his friend, I think his friend Patty, um, that if either one of them had something happen to them in the war, they would take care of the other person's family. And it did happen where his his friend was killed. And so when he came back, he he was helping care for his friend's mother. His friend's cousin, uncle, I can't remember now. This is a story I heard a while ago, but... Um, was getting into spiritualism and actually had some points where he just felt this intense spiritual darkness that was encroaching on him and and ended up being uh, committed, I think for, for some time. And so some of that actually seeps over into Weston, especially with Weston doing the invitation of the evil force, you know, where he, he says, I invite that force into me right now. And that was it. You know, it yeah. was, um, and after that, it was no longer Weston. And there's, there's a, I, what's interesting for me about Weston in the book, again, this time, I don't remember for la- other times if I have felt this way or not, is I really felt bad for Weston. And you were asking about, is there something that I noticed early in the book that, that pointed to something later in the book? It was that encroaching feeling of feeling bad for what happened to Weston where he gave himself over and he's asking for help. You know, every once in a while and Lewis doesn't know or what ransom doesn't know. Is it actually Weston coming through or is it the unman tricking him? Yeah. um, Pretending to be, but when all is said and done, uh, ransom still does a memorial for Weston. And it just, to me, that brings up just kind of this humanity, this, this reminder and maybe even memorial of humanity where it's Weston was a human and had a tragic 
story in this book. And he made choices that led him to that place, but it's still a tragedy. This is a lost soul. This is a lost life. Yeah, it's still a human being that's lost. Yeah, yeah, as bad as he was. And yeah. um, yeah, it's just that getting to that memorial at the end. I do remember the first time I read it or one of the first times I read it and getting that memorial part at the end and just being like, what? <laughs> like, why? Why yeah. is he doing this? This doesn't make any sense to me. And then when I was listening this time, I remembered that feeling that I'd had before, but it was and maybe that feeling that I had before allowed me to um, have it be a little closer to the surface where I'm like, oh, but wait, like this is a, a human being who died on this planet and who might be the only human being to ever die on this planet and might be the first sentient being and possibly only sentient being to die on this planet until yeah. it winds down like Malacandra or whatever. And that's something that's been going on in my mind lately anyway, is just as I'm interacting with people online and seeing people interact online and seeing people forget the humanity of people online and seeing, you know, my kids, of course, siblings are best friends and worst enemies at the same time, you know, <laughs> trying to get my kids to recognize, you know, they might really irritate you right now, but they're people, you know, and yeah. they're a human soul that we are called to love. And um, one of the things I, I teach often in my, my class on Sunday morning with my kids is God wants us to love our neighbor. And our neighbor is the person who lives next door. Our neighbor is the person who lives down the street. Our neighbor is a person in our school classroom. Our neighbor is our mom, our dad, our grandma, our grandpa, aunt, and uncle. Our neighbor is the stinky kid that no one wants to talk to at school. And our neighbor is your worst enemy and your best friend and your brother and sister. <laughs> but yep. just the idea of everyone is your neighbor. Everyone, you know, and, and so... Ransom, who had a hand in at least destroying the body of Weston, is doing this memorial. And it just, for this time around for me, it, it really stuck out to me. Um, and I'm not sure how much that inspired or pushed me in the novel that I just finished that hopefully will be coming soon. Ghosts of the future. Watch for it. But um, <laughs> I just put the finishing touches on it. I'm not sure if I'm going to self-publish or try and find a publisher. I, I don't know what I'm going to do with it now. But it's done. But one of the things in there is just this idea of there's a character who's learning about the humanity of the people around him. And there's also this memorial for people who have died on this planet. And I'm wondering, did I do anything new in this book? <laughs> am, I just, <laughs> am I just copying from everything that I love? Um, but even if you are, I don't think that matters. I mean, well, George it, Lucas did the same thing. That's what C.S. Lewis is doing right here. He's stealing. Yeah. You know, he, he's yeah. taking Paradise Lost and saying, I want it to theologically line up with what I believe and be a science fiction story because I like that. You know, and yeah, um, yeah, because Paradise Lost really, he loves the, the style of Paradise Lost. It's a beautiful work of art for him, but the theology behind it have some sticking points yeah. for him, especially the the presentation of the character of Satan. Yeah. And although what's interesting is Lewis uh, didn't. Okay. Well, let's just, let's go here first in out of the silent planet. I paired it up with a nonfiction book that I think the, that they go together, the discarded image, which is about the old <laughs> image of, of the universe that the medieval people had. And, We'll get to that hideous strength and what, what nonfiction one would go with that. But for this book, 
the nonfiction book is very easy. It's called Preface to Paradise Lost. And it's basically C.S. Lewis making the case for why he wants to write Paralandra, because he is kind of exploring Paradise Lost, what's good about it, what's bad about it. And he talks about the Satan character in Paradise Lost and how a lot of people feel like the Satan character is the most identifiable character. Yeah. Um, the protagonist. Yeah, almost, <laughs> almost. And he doesn't see it that way. Obviously, he doesn't see him as the protagonist, but he also doesn't see him as the most compelling character because he's the most ridiculous character. Um, one, I won't get the book out. I'll just paraphrase. But one of the things he says about Satan is Satan is not wronged. Like the reason he rebels in Paradise Lost is because um, Christ is kind of taking his place. You know, he's the highest part, you know, the highest angel. But here's now this new planet with these people. And what's this mean? And so he's rebelling just because he has he has a, a slight that is kind of presumed against him. Like what you were saying about Loki. You know, the, the things that Loki feels were wronged against him really kind of weren't. But that's the way he perceived it. And perception is reality. And he, he sees Milton's Satan as a nobly drawn, but ridiculous nonsense character, because the things he's doing just don't make sense. The motivation that Milton tries to ascribe to him doesn't make sense. And um, so here he's writing, Satan is a very interesting character. The unman, I should say, is a very interesting character in this book. Um Another moment that I love is when he's talking about how when Eve sinned on earth, that brought about one of the greatest things in the universe to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then Ransom says, but really, how do you feel about this? You know, when what happened <laughs> after, you know, and, and, and the unman gives this howl, you know, not of anger and not at either the people he's with, but at the memory of what had happened. And just that yeah. the, his his failure there. And it's interesting because a lot of the, the arguments that he's using, <clears throat> and I'll pick up on that in that hideous strength because I think he hits many nails on the head on that one. But a lot of the arguments are arguments that people use today for justifying terrible things. You know, it's like, well... You know, World War Two, Mengele wasn't that bad because look at all the scientific advances and medical advances that came out of, you know, the. So how could you take the lives and the health and the well-being of all those people away, you know? And it's it's sort of like, why? Well, <laughs> because what was done to get to that point was monstrous, and when you devolve people to the level of monsters and then champion that, then there's a problem. Yeah. And the thing with, with Mengele is, yeah, we have been able to benefit from that. I don't know if we could have gotten to those things in another way, or if those are things that we just never would have found out, but I have a feeling that any problems, any problems solved by what evil did in those situations would have been problems that people would have recognized as a problem and found a different way to solve because this is a problem, this disease or this, this disorder or this, this, I don't know, this, this factory 
right. setting, you know, whatever it might be like, oh, this works better because of this thing that evil people did. Okay. Yeah. It's getting used, but at the same time, I feel like any real problem that, that got solved out of that, we, we can't point to that and say it's okay. And, and, and you can't justify doing more bad things because good things might come out of it. Yeah, and 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 you're right though. That is, pe- people are still saying that kind of thing even today, where it is like it's for the greater good. The ends justify the means. You know those mm-hmm. those kind of things. Yeah. Um. They don't. <laughs> they don't. Yeah. So. I I had a a job once where we had to. I won't get into it, but we had to sell things, and my boss wanted me to, you know, sell the living daylights out of stuff. And I'm trying to make the point, and I don't know if I'm making it perfectly here, but I said, if I had one thing where all you would have to buy is that one thing and you wouldn't need any other things after that one thing, you would still want me to push that thing, even though it would put us out of business. And she's like, well, if we carried it, then of course I would want you to sell it. And I was like, but it would put us out of business. We wouldn't have to sell anything else. We couldn't sell anything else if people realized what this thing was. And I don't think she understood it. You know, th- th- this might have been something that just played out in my head and I never actually introduced it to her. But, you know, people don't understand that if you, if you go so far, then there's no turning back. And with with things like, you know, spiritual things like, you know, Weston twisting them and and Ransom trying to straighten them, things like that. It's it's like if you sign on to one or the other, there could be a point where there's no, you know, like Hebrews says, there's there's no there's there's some point where there's no going back, you know, and. And we as Christians, we as caretakers of, you know, people like Tinodrill and children and things like that, I think we need to take that to heart and make sure that we're introducing things to them and encouraging them in ways that isn't going to lead them to these things. Like, like you know... Uh, it would be interesting to see the backstory and from this, from between Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra for Weston to yeah, see yeah. what that whole thing looked like. And I mean, it would be a tragedy, <laughs> but it would flesh out a little bit about maybe the mindset that he was going into that brought him to the point where he could sign on to, to become the young man. Yeah. I, and we do get a little bit of it. Because we, I, you get the impression that there is a spiritual oppression on him on Earth after he comes back, where he moves from being a I don't know if, if naturalist is quite the right word, but but a um, natural scientist where he believes in science, he believes in the physical, he um, he believes that uh what you see is what you get, you know, and, yeah, and that, materialist, yeah, yeah, a materialist. Yeah. 
he moves from that into being this spiritualist who believes in in the force. He believes in the life force and he starts seeing the spiritual side of the universe. Now he sees it as I think he might be a universalist because he's saying, you know, what I see and what I've learned and what I've recognized in the world is what you see as a Christian and also what Buddhists would would see and and you know, he he's it's you're all just seeing reflections of the spiritual side of the world, you know, but there's this life force and, and God and the devil are both as much of the life force as anything else. And, and good and evil, they don't really exist except as these concepts, you know, and, and he's just kind of, but he's gone to this point where he is more accepting of the spiritual to the point where he calls it in and, and, and accepts in in some ways he, he accepts, you know, Satan into his heart, you know, and it's the, yeah. the thing where, you know, the possession happens because he gives himself over to it, not because it's a um, being forced upon him. Yeah. And it's, it's different when, when you look at this type of thing, because unrepentant humanity has that spirit of the world informing them, you know, it's sort of like, that's, that's what we're born with. You know, that we're born with that original sin and with him, it's 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 less being obsessed with the the spirit of the world and you know not even just past the the point of being oppressed by the spirit of the world but you know selling himself all the way to it so he can be possessed mm-hmm. by by that spirit and that's that's the horror because you know, humanity is one step away from that already because of how we're how we're born. But here we have it played out on that big stage um, of you know the entire planet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the sin a little bit in this world, because as much as he says it's not allegorical, I think it is. There's some good metaphorical stuff going on with. He says, you're not to spend the night on the fixed lands. You are to be on the islands. And that very much informs Tenadrill's worldview of the idea of, well, what would happen if you were to bite into a fruit and it's not the fruit you expected it to be? And she says, well, then I would enjoy the goodness of this thing that is unexpected, you know, and um, everything is all about taking things as basically as God has given it to you, you know, and taking the waves as God has given them to you and taking the, the fruit as God has given it to you. When she sees, she sees ransom at first, she, she wonders if she has, you know, in the distance, was it, was it the King? Was it Tor? And, oh, it's something else. It's someone else. And so she takes this new thing as it's given to her, you know, and it's just this idea of, of choice you know, where the things come to you and you choose how you take it as opposed to choosing, you know, to go against what God is giving you. And, and so I'm wondering, you know, what, and I, I, I don't think this is original with me, but the idea, okay. I I shouldn't say, I don't think, I know this is not original with me. I just can't remember if I read it before I thought it. Okay. But I know I'm not the first person to think this where, 
the fixed land is a sin in that original commandment because God is saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to take what what's coming and trust that I'm going to take care of you in the midst of it instead of you going on the fixed land and, and forging your own way. And cause that's, this is what I do. And so maybe this is a little bit of, a bit of self, uh, self exploration here. When things are wrong, my mind automatically goes to, how do I fix this? What do I do? What yeah. did I do wrong? You know, and it's, it's, it's me centric, you know, and even, even what I'm saying, it sounds like, well, okay, but it sounds like you're just trying to, you know, fix it, you know, or whatever. But I go to that first, you know, and my wife, it's, she's often when I, when I, you know, spew off my issues, you know, and she often, did, did you pray about this yet? You know, like just a very <laughs> simple, simple question. Did you, yeah. did you pray about this yet? And it's like, ah. And then I get really frustrated with my wife because she's right. And I'm, um, but yeah, but the, this idea the whole planet is not fixed, you know, and there's, she has no conception of possessions because she doesn't need possessions Yeah, because she's being cared for, you know, and, um, and her innocence in that you know, conversation where she's exploring, explaining, I, well, she's not explaining. She has, she needs him to explain what are possessions, you know? And, and it's just this, well, this is an interesting thought you've given me. I'm older now. And yeah, I guess it would make sense that you need that where you are. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, then the, the sin of our world is the knowledge of good and evil. Whereas I feel like the sin in, in Paralandra is not necessarily the, the knowledge of good and evil, although that's a part of it, but it is really more about um, how you follow God and how you allow him to lead you and, yeah. and making the right choices as you follow him. And yeah. yeah. And in a way it's, it's sort of like a social contract. Where on our planet, God said, here's our social contract. You don't eat this from this one, one tree, you know? Okay. So we're going to live that way. And it was understood. And then here, here comes Satan, who's going to test the social contract. And all of a sudden he's like, what's the reason for the social contract? Why did, why is that rule there? Why couldn't it be something else? What's the deal? And all of a sudden, the social contract is stretched to the point where Eve makes her decision. And, you know, similar here where the social contract says you don't live on that on that land. You know, it's like a, on my on my city bus that I drive um, for the, about the first month. People would get on the bus and sometimes they would have, you know, be drinking, not wearing their mask or eating or whatever it is. And I said, it's because they don't understand the social contract that happens when you get on a public transportation system. They just, for whatever reason, they don't understand it. So recently I've stood up and, or sometimes over the intercom and very quickly, very briefly in 15 seconds, given them the social contract, keep your mask up, 
no eating or drinking on the bus, no cell phone usage, and keep your language and conversations polite, period. And there's still some people who can't go that simple to follow. I'm still finding, you know, oh, I have a drink. I opened my drink. Oh, hold on a second. I'm on the phone. I can't get. And it's simple because if you can't do those simple steps in a social contract, then the other people in that social contract that have signed on to the same thing can't trust you to obey the deeper things like not abusing people or, you know, acting out or, or damaging property or something. Those are the deeper things, which I don't even talk about those. I'm like, you know, don't poke holes in the tires, everybody. I don't say that because it's just assumed that that's the hard stuff that no one is going to do. And I'm just giving you the easy stuff where you prove that you're part of the social structure by following these simple things. God gave Adam and Eve a simple thing. And Tinadrill has a simple thing that she needs to do. And when you have people struggling against those simple things, it's people who at the core have something deeper that they're trying to do. Something nefarious, Satan or the unmanned. There, there's something going on there that is not just going against the simple part of the contract. It's going against the deeper part of those contracts. You know, that everyone should understand. You will surely die. Okay, so if I do this thing, I will surely die. Got it. I'll do the simple thing so that bad thing, that really deep thing doesn't happen. And, you know, looking at it sort of in those terms, you can sort of get an understanding where the struggle is. It's not just, you know, oh, my dad you know, told me I have to clean the, the kitchen and I'm not going to clean that kitchen. Well, is the real problem you not wanting to clean the kitchen or the kitchen being dirty? No, it's your heart and your obedience and the following of that and that whole thing. And where that disobedience struggle plays out is so much deeper. And for all of us, there's that, that disobedience rebellion where that's just our our, part of our nature. And, but then it goes into different branches and, and expresses itself in different ways. And, and we have to deal with it in different ways for every person. And that's where, you know, there is some truth to the personal truth idea where my personal truth is I have sin, but it expresses itself in this way and yours is, but it all comes down to the same root. The, the root right. truth is, is there's one root truth. Yep. So you have this sin on Paralandra where it's not to go to the island. It's interesting too, when the green landy, uh, green lady, um, she, her expression when, uh, she realizes uh, Weston intends to stay there, you know, and she's, yep. she's on the solid ground, but night is coming and she, well, no, we can't, we can't stay here. This is, you know, and, and again, his temptation for her, um, is, well, he wants you to, Yeah, he wants you to, even though he said he doesn't want you to, and I'm here to tell you what he really means. And, and it's the same in the garden of Eden. It really was, you know, Satan, there's the lie with the truth, you know, and you'll be like him. That's why he doesn't want you to do this. Yeah. You won't surely die. Um, interestingly, 
one of the things that I picked up as I was looking into Paradise Lost is the idea that uh, when Eve sinned, her sin was actually a sin of murder. Because when she did that, it, you will surely die. Well, when, when she and Adam, she brings it to Adam and he takes it, um, he's going to surely die now. Yeah. You know, and she, she was a part of that. It's an interesting idea. I don't know how deep I want to go with that because it's not important. <laughs> you know, that that <laughs> definition of things is not that important. But um, the the sin of rebellion against God is is really what's what's there. So. All right. Uh, let's see here. This is something I picked up this time around because the last few times I read it, I hadn't really gotten that deep into H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, Paralandra is kind of the anti-Lovecraft. When you read Lovecraft and he talks about these cosmic things that just can't be described because they're just cosmic and they'll make you go mad and and they're they're big and giant and evil and 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 you cannot conceive what it is. The same thing is happening here, but it's the opposite. It's, these are things that are so pure and beautiful. These are colors that you can experience, but you can't really see. And, and just the idea of that same kind of thing, but it's that language is not enough to describe this very specific thing. And, and he saw colors that he's never seen before. And I think this is, it's the passage about color that made me think of it because of the color out of space, uh, uh-huh. the movie that we, that John Haru and I talked about last year and I'd gone and read the story and everything. And, and, uh, the color out of space is this color that, you know, it, it's not, it's not on earth. It, it, you don't experience this color. And so it's this thing that's outside of the realm of, of, of the spectrum or whatever. And, and he's trying to describe these colors and he says, well, here's the deal. I can't describe it, but I'll know it when I see it again. And, and yep. it's, it's there, it's in his memory, but he just can't describe what this color looked like that just is outside of our senses, so to speak. And how yeah. everything that he was experiencing, that he because it gets into the idea of how he would get into debates with people. And there's a character that they talk about who is... Um, uh, anti-Christian character that shows up in that hideous strength, McPhee. And this character, they were at a meal together and they start talking about, you know, things beyond human uh, experience. And it actually starts to go a little bit of a theological direction, but then um, it goes into a philological direction where they start talking about, well, how do we label this? They talk about being trans, transsensual. Like, how does that is that is that the right word for it or should we use a, a different prefix you know and so it turns from this theology debate into this um yeah. language debate uh mm-hmm. but where he's again trying to explore explore like the idea that this is beyond what our senses can experience but it's yeah. not beyond what our what our spirits can experience and yeah and it comes up again when weston says you mean to tell me that you've been on this planet with this beautiful and naked person and nothing has happened really and yeah. ransom's just trying to explain well it's it's beyond that you know her yeah. her beauty is beyond that physical piece you know and it never even really crossed ransom's mind because of what he's seeing and and that reminds me of the weight of glory where you, when you, that essay that, that C.S. Lewis wrote where everyone you look at 
has God's glory in them because mm-hmm. God created them. And in the image of God, he created them. Yeah. And so, you know, the dirtiest person, the sinniest person, the prettiest person, they still carry some of God's glory because in the image of God, they were created. Yeah. And we, if you start looking at people like that, it's hard to see the other stuff. Or if you do see it, it's again, recognizing that humanity there that, and, and in that case, I'm, I'm describing humanity as yeah, someone created by God and, and someone who God loves God. And, yeah. and someone who's made in the image of God. Yeah. That's one of the, sometimes when I'm talking to people, I will, and it's, it gets a little spiritual. I'll, I'll try to get them to this point and ask them this question. And I say, you know, there are, there are people in this world who, if your worst enemy and your favorite dog were both drowning in different ends of a pool and you could save one of them, there are people in the world who would save the dog. And some people will look me straight in the face and be like, I think I'd save the dog too. And I say to myself, a human being made in the image of God or dog. (laughs) Made in the image of dog. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. You would choose the dog, you know, and, and it opens eyes sometimes because people are, 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 they just assume that, you know, people, and this is, this is probably one of my deep criticisms and concerns about C.S. Lewis, his writing, and especially this fiction here, is he, he is coming out of evolutionary understandings of the world. And I don't know how much of, of that changed over the course of his, or evolved over the course <laughs> of his life. But um, you get a lot of that, that humans are animals or humans were animals type of feeling um, in some of his writings. And I, I don't believe at, at the level where he was thinking and the level where he was writing, he truly believed that, you know, that, that human beings and animals were the same type of thing. I think he had some distinction about it, but when I read these, especially these last three, these three books here, it's, it's not clear and I think it would have it would have been better if if it were clearer. Um, obviously, for me personally, if, and for you know creationist people, people with a young Earth understanding, if he had come from that. But I think to appeal to people who were reading science fiction, um, you know, at that especially at that time, they were probably looking more for a, you know, an older earth, an evolutionary type of feel to, you know, HP Lovecraft does the same thing. And a lot of the, um, um, science fiction writers would use those, you know, millions of years to, to project things into the future. So you would have that sense of it being in the past. Um, so with, with me personally, I think he wasn't, he didn't hit that nail on the head. He didn't get that um, as sorted as, as, as clear as it could have been. Um, well, and I think that 
I don't think that ever changed for him. I, I don't think he ever went beyond. He, he was a, an old earth uh, believer. Like he, he believed that there was an, an evolution, evolutionary um, basis on the development of the world mm-hmm. that, that it was old and, and not, not the young earth. Um, so real quick, I got a couple other things, uh, just interesting things about Paralanda to jump into. One is, um, that, uh, and he says that, you know, the Narnia books all started with a picture. Well, he also says that Paralanda started with a picture. Um, and there's a conversation article called unreal estates where he says the starting point for my second novel, Paralandra was my mental picture of the floating islands. The whole rest of my labors in a sense consisted of building up a world in which floating islands could exist. And then of course the story about an averted fall developed. This is because as you know, having got your people into this exciting country, something must happen. So again, that's where as much as we call this, I call it, it's a fantasy. You know, it's, it's, there's not a lot of science in it, but it is still kind of coming from that scientific side where it's the scientific what if, what if there's this world that had these floating islands and what is that like? But then he's also asking the other what if question that goes along with it, which is what if there was a world that was young and they were having their, their Genesis 3 battle right now? And, and my language guy who's based on J.R.R. Tolkien <laughs> gets put in a flying <laughs> coffin and carried by angels to visit there. The other interesting thing that I found out that I never knew before is that I've always wondered, like, could this be a movie? I've always felt like maybe not a movie, but it probably could be a comic book um, because you can do the artwork in such a way that you can hide things behind trees and stuff. But in the book, The Narnian, The Life and Imagination of C.S. Lewis by Alan Jacobs, he found uh, something from another book by Donald Swan, who is a musician. And in Donald Swan's book, he describes an an encounter with C.S. Lewis. And so it says, "On on July 14th, 1960, two guests visited Lewis at the Kilns. The composer Donald Swan and the librettist David Marsh, they had come to have breakfast and discuss with Lewis their bold plan, originally conceived by Swan, to make Paralandra into an opera. It was a brilliant idea. The stylized but highly dramatic plot of the novel, with its long rhetorical set pieces and unrealistic setting, probably belongs more to the world of opera than to any other artistic form. After breakfast, they walked in the garden, discussing the possibilities and the obstacles to the realization of their plan. Then Lewis paused and said, and this is where, this is just about the character of, of Lewis, and I, and I don't know exactly what this says about him, but he paused and said, I hope you'll excuse me, I must go now because my wife died last night. So just a fascinating, like, he had this time set with them. He lets them come into his house and um, lets them take up his time and then politely says, well, now I need you to, to go on your way. But um, it's a fascinating, <laughs> fascinating little story there. So the last thing I want to talk about was the world itself. And you had, we had talked about colors and how you had talked about how vivid the language is bringing it to life. I think some of that vividness is very poetic. I feel like this is one of his most poetic novels. It's my second favorite book for him till we have faces. Last time I read it just made it far and away. My favorite book by him, my favorite novel of all time. This is probably top five novels of all time for me, but till we have faces will never be dethroned ever 
I, I just I just don't think he'll ever be dethroned. I love that book. Except so for much. Ghost of the Future, right? That'd oh, that's one. different, you know, because it's mine, you know. But <laughs> it's your baby. Yeah. But um I do find it so interesting the physical journey that mirrors the spiritual journey and the, the spiritual battle where everything is bright. Even at night, there's a brightness to the language of what's going on on the floating islands and even on the, the fixed lands. And it's all above ground. It's lush. It, there's so much life. And, and so you have then Weston come into that and bring death, bring these ideas that the green lady sorts through and then chooses which side of the debate she's going to allow to win. But, um, then you get the physical battle. And I think that that's one of the hooks that when I was younger, I was like, yeah, I love the ideas that I'm reading through, but I know I'm going to get to the physical battle at the end. And even then the physical battle is still a spiritual one because it's in, involves like just his thoughts and his fears as he's descending into darkness, but they descend into the land and into this rocky, barren, dark place. And they have their physical battle and it, it continues on down into this craggy, lifeless um, but it's, it's just the opposite of what's up above. And this, it, this time it really just struck me about just how bright and brilliant and beautiful the above is. And then as the battle continues, it goes into this dark lifeless place. And that's where ransom suffers a, a metaphorical death. You know, he's gone down into the grave, so to speak. And then after the battle, with his wounds and his, his weariness, he, he climbs back up and comes out on a mountaintop. Like he goes into the earth and comes up. He, he, he didn't just climb up to the surface. He climbed up to the surface level and then through a mountain like he's, and that's how he gets <laughs> up to the top. But, um, and then comes out and, and then he's reborn in some ways. He, he has this wound though, that will never go away. And yeah. we'll talk about that in, in uh, that hideous strength, but yeah. um, he, he doesn't even remember getting it. It's cool because this time when I was listening, I was like, in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking, I remember the wound, but when did it happen? When did it happen? It never gets described when it happens. He, as his lesser wounds start feeling better, realizes he has this bad wound on his heel that he was bit you know, and, and in my mind, I conjured up this idea of when the bite happened, Yeah, but it, it's like when Luke loses his hand, you know, yeah, you know it, you know it, <laughs> but that's not here. You know, it's just, yep. it happened at some point in the battle and he didn't even notice. And now it's a, a reminder that will never go away. And that's another thing that just, you know, as you think about the Christian life and you could take it a couple different ways. One is as, especially if you become a Christian later in life, there are still wounds and scars that you carry with you when you cross that threshold into um, life with, with Christ into um, the new life and the rebirth of, of, of life as part of God's kingdom and, and part of God's family. Yep. You still carry some of them can be like, yeah, some of them can be, I mean, extremely obvious. Like, you know, uh, I love the devil tattoo, tattoo or something. <laughs> Or, you know, it could be the result of a bad life choice, yeah. you know, it could yeah. be a disease or, you know, something like that. But then you can also take it where just, again, the idea of 
as things are coming at you, you know, how are you going to respond to them? Uh, wounds still happen though. You know, whether it's a, that might be a relational thing where, you know, I've been a Christian all my life, but I have these wounds from different things that have happened that you carry with you, even when it's done and you've gone through it. And it's a reminder of what you've gone through. And it's not necessarily a, a good reminder. It can be a painful reminder. It could be a physical thing. Like you said, bad choices that led to, um, lung cancer or, or whatever. Right. Or bad choices that lead to a, a tattoo that you're like, I really regret that because I don't want that <laughs> message on my body now. Yeah. Uh, but then he, he does not walk away from this unscarred and it doesn't stop bleeding. And, and so that's actually a hook at the beginning where he comes back and Hey, you got a wound there. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Let's, yeah. <laughs> did you bring a doctor? <laughs> Cause I told you to bring a doctor. But yeah, so that's that's Paralandra, and there's lots of stuff we didn't get to talk about because we didn't think about because, and there's lots of books by much smarter people than us that have talked about much deeper things than we have. But uh, is there anything else that you wanted to to talk about before we we close this down? I think we covered the things on on my list. Um, the unfortunate thing for me is that uh, <laughs> the physical book that i read and you know took notes on the pages um i've misplaced oh (laughs) so (laughs) um but i think we got to to most if not all of those things and and the things that you brought up were probably more interesting anyway don't lose your copy of that hideous strength i have it right there okay all right all my notes in it too i we could do we could do an episode per chapter on the notes that I have for that. Well, I was thinking about that, honestly, not thinking that we would do that, but thinking that in all honesty, you could take the space trilogy and do an episode about every chapter of each book and, and just do a podcast that is just CS Lewis's space trilogy. Um, we won't, we're not going to, but, um, but it could be done. And if someone wanted to do that, that'd be really interesting. I don't know if I'd be able to listen to it or not because, um, that's a lot of, of episodes you're going to be doing there, but I'd love to be a part of something like that. That'd be cool. Yeah. Instead, I'm part of something like this strangers and aliens podcast about science fiction and spirituality. And this is where CS Lewis makes it easy for us and takes his things that he loves, makes it into a work of art that he loves and into a work of art that we love. This is one of his favorite books too up there with with till we have faces so very cool and sort of to to dovetail that uh, today would have been uh my daughter's 18th birthday so talking about someone who was massively creative and led a life of faith and and uh my daughter sort of at the same time is uh it's really a cool thing so because she she just recently passed away we didn't we haven't talked about this on the podcast but Yeah. yeah so um, if anyone wants to know more about it, then that's fine. Uh, it was a catastrophic brain event. It wasn't anything that was, uh, diagnosed or anything like that. So, but yeah, leave it at that. And, uh, maybe we'll talk about it at a different time. Yeah. Whose name was Eden. Ironically. Yeah, as we're talking <laughs> about this, this book about Eden. So. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you for joining me today and for rejoining, um, as we are trying to pick things back up and yeah. And uh, just when I say pick things back up, I mean, just get back into a, 
a rhythm of hanging out together and talking about this yeah. stuff. And yeah, I miss uh, this. Yeah. So, and if you're listening right now, thank you so much for, for listening and for spending time with us about this. Um, if you want to contact us, the best way, honestly, to contact us right now is on social media. That's Facebook or Twitter. Um, and that's because our email address is going to have to change because GoDaddy has changed the terms of the deal. And what was free for us to use is now going to become not expensive right now, but that's the way businesses do that is they give you that huge discount. And then in a year it goes back up. So, um, I would use social media for now. There is a possibility that GoDaddy might make a change between now. And I think we have like four months left on this email, but yeah. But thank you again for listening. If you have thoughts about Paralandra out of the silent planet or that hideous strength, please send them to us. We are also planning on doing an episode about the dark tower, but we're going to do that after the fact, because these are Canon. The dark tower is not. No. Um, but it's still worth reading and it's still part of the ransom, um, cycle in the sense that it was part of, uh, C.S. Lewis's, um, thought process, yeah, thought process. So. Yeah. I thought about leaving you with some of Lewis's poetry. I'm not going to, because he did write a poem called prelude to space where he talks about how he feels about people going into space. And I thought, Oh, that'd be really neat. Especially with the connection that he has to Arthur C. Clarke. I don't know when he wrote that poem, but it is not good. <laughs> you can find it online, but that poem is basically a very vivid description of humanity raping space. So I'm not going to go into that. Um, but he was definitely against Ew. humanity going to space because we would carry our sin with us to those places. And that is what happens here in this book. And I might cut that whole bit out, but it's true. That's what the poem was like. So. So thank you for listening. Thank you for spending time with us. And next episode is going to be about something that I'm not sure what it is, but it won't be that hideous strength, but we're not going to wait a year and we're also not going to wait seven years. <laughs> so, um, and we're not gonna wait seven years and then do another episode about Paralandra because we forgot we did this episode. <laughs> so until next time, thank you so much for listening and Godspeed. You've been listening to the Strangers and Aliens podcast, hosted by Ben Avery, Evan David, Steve McDonald, and Dr. Jay Samuel. Our music was composed and mixed by Tim Leffel. We'd love for you to join the conversation by going to our website at strangersandaliens.com, where you'll find show notes, articles, reviews, and more. You can also email us directly at podcast at strangersandaliens.com. Or you can join our social media conversations by following us on Twitter, where we are at Strange and Alien or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangersandaliens. Or leave us a voicemail by calling the Strangers and Aliens hotline. That number is 1-804-37-ALIEN. And once again, thanks for listening. All clear. All right. Now I have a train. Sometimes there's just. (laughs) Hope I didn't blow blow your train of thought. See what I did there? I did. Train. I think you might have just gotten a a post credit there. (laughs) Deleted scene. This might be a deleted scene.